Well, good morning. I do want to say uh, welcome to all of you. And just to mention, last week, if you were here, um, it was fun, as always, to have one of our very own Peter Kapsner share with us. And uh, some have said to me, he hit it out of the park. And uh, I have to say, it was great to to be able to <clears throat> view that service last Sunday and to be with you. There are a number of things that I would like to share with you, and I will do it by taking off my mask. How's that? You know, you wear these so often you forget after a while. Um, what I want to share with you is up here, the here to their roadmap. We are at the point where we're talking about reset and what does it look like. And this morning, um, I want to take a few moments to share with you like kind of how we got to where we're at. And in that roadmap, you can see that we started really with the elders back in February, March of a year ago, before, even before the COVID, we met with a consultant, probably January, I think it was, started to say, let's do a survey. We did that survey in June, reported that in September, then went into a time of just trying to get more specifics through focus groups, took time to meet together in prayer groups, did that all through December, and then began to compile some of that and then took this last 21 days. And as Taylor said, 31, it felt like that for some, right? And, and fasted in a number of different ways, digitally, food, uh, from negativity, all for the purpose of saying, God, we, we don't want to be distracted. We want to be filled not with the other things around us, but we want to make space for you to show up and to lead us and to guide us. And we ask people to share some of those things as well. So we've actually been in this time called listening to God and listening to one another. And you can see we're on this roadmap. And, and now today and the next few Sundays, we'll be talking about what does reset look like. And we need to start by saying why we can't stay here. If you want to understand where here is at, you can go back to that September message when our consultant just shared some of the things that you had given to us. And now, as we've listened further, been able to kind of digest it a bit more and I wanted just to bring to you that the, there is what I call both good news and bad news. And, and, and when you think of good news, bad news, I thought, well, it'd be nice to look at a few good news, bad news jokes. And what I found very interesting is the medical field seems to be filled with good news, bad news jokes. Um, for instance, the doctor says to his patient, I have bad news, you're going to die. Patient says, oh my word, doc, how long do I have? Doctor says, ten. Patient says, 10 what? Years? Months? Weeks? Days? Doctor says, nine. Eight. There's another one Doc said to his patient. Got some good news and some bad news. Patient replied, why don't you just combine them both? He said, okay, they're going to name a new disease after you. I could go on with those. There's some Zoom call ones where someone says, I um, got good news, bad news. Bad news is you've got hat head. Good news is you don't have any hair, so it doesn't matter. Um, what I want to share with you is some good news and bad news with regard to the church and our culture and the state of things. And uh, the bad news isn't a joke. This isn't something that really is humorous. And I wanted to share with you, and I was going to say, do you want to hear the good news or bad news first, but I already made that choice to share with you what I consider to be important to say where we are as a church and as a culture, and the church and our culture um, are in trouble. I don't think you need to know that, uh, be told that. 
because you're aware of that. But what I think is interesting about it is we've talked and heard a lot about the culture, but I want to share with you some of the present realities of the church and share with you what is being said from from godly scholars and also um, different polls, books, etc. This past Friday morning, and so I'm going to share with you some things that are very, very real in the moment. Relevant Magazine posted this article with these words. Times are changing in America. Studies indicate that Christianity in the U.S. is in decline. And, and we know that, but here's what it says. A steady number of those reports tell us that the number of nuns, those who are not adherent to any religion, and the duns, those who are done with religion, are on the rise while church attendance steadily decreases. A Pew study demonstrated that um, an eight percentage point drop in those calling themselves Christian. This is, and Pew studies are done every few months to every six months, and they come out with different ones where they keep measuring this. So that kind of percentage drop, they say, is, a, is notable. And that same study with the percentage of Americans who call themselves religiously unaffiliated, they're either atheists or they're, they're agnostic or they're the new category, nothing in particular, again, nuns, um, continues to climb in the sense who call themselves that. And they've noted in just a short period of time from one survey to another, it jumps some six points. And that's pretty remarkable. It usually goes up maybe a point or a few points. There's all kinds of resources on this. I, I could share with you, um, I'll share there's books. Uh, James Emery White, if you want to look at a good one, has one called The Rise of the Nuns. McDonald and Wallace has one, I mean, Cook Publishing called um, So the Next Generation Will Know. It also is in a, it's actually in a video series. You can watch it on Prime if you want to watch it. There's articles and podcasts. Ed Stetzer, who's the dean of Wheaton's Billy Graham Center, Basically, their function is is to figure out how to evangelize each generation. If you listen to his stuff, or Francis Chan has written on this, Benjamin Wendell, there's names like Brady Shear, Kerry Newhoff, you may not even be aware of those, but there's a number of leaders who are speaking out on this. There's research and pollsters who also share in this news that you could look at. There's the Barna Research Group, or Lifeway Research, or Pew Studies, as well as you can begin to read articles now even in the secular news from the Atlantic Monthly to the New York Times to USA Today. They just keep coming out. So if you want to find out this information, it's there. But one of the important changes that you, we need to take stock of as, as people who are followers of Jesus Christ and love his church is that the church right now has an issue with credibility. And it's not just current, but it's become, in a sense, um, more so. It's really at its low point when it comes to credibility. This has been happening over the last generation. Russell D. Moore, who is the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, he's a part of the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, was once the dean of theology at the Southern Baptist Seminary. In an interview in Time Magazine, the February 1st edition, so the one that just came out, he writes, the biggest threat facing the American church right now is not secularism, but cynicism. That's why we have to recover the credibility of our witness. It's one thing to dismiss the teachings of his faith as strange and unlikely, he notes, but if people walk away from the church because they don't believe that we really believe what we say, then that's a crisis. 
This is what he fears will be the legacy of an era in which people of faith put so much faith in a president. There is an entire generation of people who are growing cynical that religion is just a means to some other end. Peter spoke on this last week. He said there's not A or B, but there is the kingdom of God, which is the C. And then how do we live in that? And that's what we are going to choose to live in. In an article that came out just this week, it's called The Inevitable Tragedy of American Christianity. It's by a person who's a believer. He's a millennial. His name is Joe Force. He writes, The damage wrought over the past few years by Christian nationalism will stain evangelical Christianity for decades to come. The continued exodus of young people from the church has far less to do with the influence of atheist professors, the Hollywood elite, or critical race theory and has more to do with the desire to no longer participate in a political party masquerading as a religious movement. Now, you can disagree with this, but this is what's being... Perception's reality in the minds of of many people in this generation. And the challenge isn't that it is just this trend and it's a political thing. The challenge is that this has been happening for a period of time. Credibility has been weakened. From church scandals, just recently the New York Hillsong pastor kind of the Hollywood pastor, has an affair. And it comes out, then a boomer apologist, Ravi Zacharias, an incredible man who explained the faith, has a moral, has, is told to have moral failures. Mega church, Pastor Bill Hybels, the Catholic church and the abuse that's happening with children. It's all come together around with political entanglements that go all the way back to the 90s and moral majority, as well as a kind of scientific ignorance and not wanting to deal with some of those things, have come together to create a sense of a credibility crisis in the church. And along with this is the church's failure to effectively reach these emerging generations with the gospel. So you have a church with a credibility failure, but now you have the church with regard to its witness and its effectiveness in reaching people with the gospel. The change from one generation to the next requires new methods and new strategies. And I I just want to, I'll say this now, I'll say it next week as well, this is not meaning the message changes. For our church, that we believe in the word of God, which I believe in the word of God, the authority and inerrancy of God's word, the message does not change. But the way we reach people, the approach to people has to change. And that's one of the things that's beginning to become more difficult. It's not just credibility, but it's how we witness in a culture like this. I just want to show you real quickly, because some of you know this, um, the generations, this chart, It's important to know these generations because I want to share with you in a moment how we've tried to reach them through the years and what it looks like in the future. At least it could be. There is the Gen Zs that are the newest, between 7 to 22 years of age. There are the millennials between 23 and 38, so find yourself. There are the um, Gen Xs, that kind of middle group between 34 and 50. 39 and 54. There are the boomers, which is that big, they used to say, it's kind of like in a snake. It was the big thing going through time. Well, now the millennials are that next big group of people going through. Boomers, 55 to 73. And then you have the silent generation, 74 to 91 is what they call that generation. And what we have to understand is that the church has had to change and does need to change through each of these generations. So let me tell you, as I can quickly, and hopefully you can follow this, 
when you look at the silent generation as it moves also into the boomer generation, it's what I would call the approach to evangelizing people was you just tell them. Okay, you just need to tell them as a direct proclamation. And, and, and then, and if you put that scale up there, would you, um, which shows from one to ten, if you look at um, ten as being a follower of Jesus, they've made a commitment, they've accepted Christ, they've moved into a relationship with Christ, and you look at one, one being there's a, it, today where people don't even care, they don't have an understanding of faith, or they have a caricature of it, or don't know anything in that sense, that's kind of down that one. If you look at eight, that's kind of the silent generation, and that's where you think of like Billy Graham crusades, and, and crusade, or campus crusades for laws, where you just go in and you would, you would proclaim the gospel. Evangelism explosion. You go to a person's house, and now today if you try and go to someone's house, they'll stick their dogs on you. I mean, it's just... And, and you, they were in an eight. They were people who grew up in the faith. They had gone to church. They were in places where they understood the, the Bible primarily, and you just needed to tell them, and it was easy to move them from eight to ten. Well, easy. The Spirit of God had to work in a person's heart. But then as you keep going down to the boomers, it moved from a tell them to a kind of you need to show them and then tell them. And this isn't a bad thing. This is just churches trying to stay up with culture. If it was direct, in a sense, you needed a direct proclamation to move from 8 to 10. Now they're around 5 to 6. And you're in a culture that says, you know what? Church, it just seems it doesn't connect. It doesn't relate. It's, you know, I don't get the traditions, etc. And so there are a lot of churches that began to say, how do we develop a relevant community? So when people come, they hear the music that they hear on the radio. They begin to hear messages that, that apply to their life situation. And there was this whole move where you moved into what they call a seeker attractional model. All you needed to do here is because they're about five or six. They've moved down a little bit. They, they began to start having children. And when their children were being born, they said, hey, we need to get back to the church. And they started to look for churches that related to who they were. The problem today with millennials is they're getting married older and they're having kids later. And that's not working any longer. The seeker kind of lets attract them into a church building where they can hear the message so that we can tell them and show them. So five or six, you know, it took a little more work. It took a little more relationship building to get them to come to church. But eventually, you could get enough to come. Now you come to Gen X's, and I don't want to be hard on the Gen X's, but that's a hard group for people. It's a small group. It's a hard group to really say what they're doing. You have people who are like boomers in Gen X, and you have people who are like millennials. So if you're Gen X, you find your spot. Millennials are about 23 to 38. Tell them doesn't work. Attractor and attraction seeker doesn't work, and I'll explain why in a moment. It has to now become very missional and incarnational. If you were talking about the one group, you tell them, and then you move to you show so that you can tell them. Now you need to know them. They won't listen to you until you kind of authentically want to relate to them and know them. And as you begin to do that, they want to know what your causes are because they are concerned with authentic community where you know them and they are concerned with compassionate causes. That's why you see businesses and everything doing that. And so if you want to reach them, you have to kind of not try and get them to come to church. You have to get to know them and you need to spend time with them and you need to develop a relationship so that at some point you can understand how the gospel might apply to their current situation. If you take Gen Z, some of them, or Gen X is some of them, Gen uh, millennials and Gen Z's is about ages 7 to about 40. 
they require the church's witness due to the lack of credibility and everything else that's going on to develop new strategies to reach them. It's one of the reasons why we can't stay here. Simple reality is we can't stay here doing what we've been doing and expect to reach the community and world around us. The annual report information survey, it's called ARIS, A-R-I-S, concludes the challenge to Christianity does not come from other religions, but from a rejection of all forms of organized religions. Barry Cosman, a co-researcher for that survey, adds, they're not thinking about religion and rejecting it at all. It's not on their mind. Jonathan Ruach, in an article in the Atlantic Monthly, he coined a term to describe his own spiritual condition. It's become pretty popular now. Someone asked him about his religion, and he was about to say atheist when he when it dawned on him in talking with this person that it wasn't quite accurate. He wasn't an atheist anymore. He said, I, this is quote, I used to call myself an atheist, but the larger truth is that it has been years since I really cared one way or another. I'm... And with that, the thought hit him. This is what he said. I'm an apatheist. And he was asked, what does that mean? He says, I'm pretty much apathetic about theism. Rook coined the term, and he's not alone. Listen, Baylor University, this is a 2012 study. 80, this is eight years ago. 44% of the generation said they spend no time seeking eternal wisdom. Lifeway research found that 46% said they never wonder whether they will go to heaven. Pew research said among those who say they believe in nothing in particular, the nuns, 88% are not even looking for a specific faith or religion. So we can do all we want through advertising and all things. I'm not saying that these things are wrong or bad, but there's a whole group of people that when you're trying to sell them something, if you're not looking for a car, right, you're not going to see any of the car ads for the most part unless you're a real car guy, right? These things, they, they just go by. They don't even look at them. They have so much information flooding them. The only way that you're going to actually see the gospel begin to penetrate their hearts is that you somehow have to get close enough to them to know them. So that you can then begin to show them and then at some point begin to tell them. So when it comes to matters related to God, religion, or even atheism, millions simply shrug their shoulders and say, when you talk to them, so what? Not that interested, don't really care. So, the bottom line is this. We will not reach the emerging younger generation if we stay here. Doing merely what we've been doing just won't work. And you might be thinking, okay. And you may have all kinds of thoughts, kind of like, yeah, let them go to wherever. Or or it doesn't matter. God has placed in our hearts as believers a desire. you, You can't help it if you've been born again. You want to also help others know this life. So here's the good news. You kind of go, well, that's bad news. That's really not real good, right? Can I share with you the good news? One word. God. All you need to know. God. I love the Bible. There's two little words that change everything. Two little words, but God. Think about it. But God. 
We were dead in our sin, but God. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but God demonstrates his love. Indeed, he almost died, but God had mercy on him. God has not given up on this generation. God is still actively pursuing and following people with goodness and mercy. In fact, we sang that song and we talk about a lot of times we are the ones trying to allow God to lead us into goodness and mercy, but the reality is God is so often behind us like it says in Psalm 23, surely, that's not a name. I used to think that as a kid all the time. You know, surely, I, when I memorize it, surely goodness and mercy will chase after you all the days of your life. And God's goodness and mercy is chasing after people who call themselves apotheists. Because I can tell you that at some point, apotheists will begin to wonder and care when, when they come against things in their life where they need but God. And we are called to be a part of it. The news is bad, but God. That's the good news. Things look bad, but God has called us. Things don't look good, but God has prepared us. If it looks like there's no way possible, God will make a way and make it possible. You have to wonder at times, can God do what he says he's going to do? But here's the promise of God that he will fulfill his word. And so that's what I want to share with you. The good news is this. If we want to partner with God, if we want to move into this next generation, say, God, what are the methods, what are the ways, how do you want us to do this? Then it will mean a but God experience where we just say what we've been saying. God, we want to listen and we want to do what you call us to do. We want to listen and do what you call us to do because I believe God has prepared us to do this, to go there to reach those who don't know him. He has not only prepared us, But this God will provide the strategies, the way. And we know this, that when he promises that he has called you, he will fulfill his word in that calling. So let me just share with you this but God. God has placed this on our hearts. That's that's what God has called us to go there. God has called us to say, how can we reach people who have moved from tell to show to, to know? How, how do you want us to do this, God? You, you obviously have called us, and, and I want to share this with you. God placed this on your heart. This is not some elder decision or some leadership board decision. We didn't bring a, a task force of people to try and figure this out. This is what you said. God placed this on your heart through surveys and through focus groups and through prayer times. One of the constant themes that keeps coming up is that God is calling us to create a new space and place for people to come to know Jesus to the gifts and calling of the younger generations. Many of you said it this way. I'll condense it in a paragraph. We want a church where our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids are excited to be a part of it and are committed to invest their lives in it. A church that is not taking church people from other churches, but is introducing others to Jesus, a place where people are having God encounters. That's kind of how it was said in so many different ways through your voices. God called us to do what he said as we listen to you and we listen to one another. Here are the three main things that came out, and it came out in the survey and it just continued to be emphasized as we went through this process. The first is this, we want to reach people with the gospel. We want people to know Jesus. The second thing was this. We want to embrace and empower the emerging younger generations. This is what you said in these surveys as well as in our um, times of listening. And the, the third thing that you said was this. And I love this. We want to do this together. 
This is not about some younger people reaching younger people. This is not about um, older people doing their own thing. This is about all of us together doing this. Because it will really take, and it always does, when God does something great, it doesn't just take a few. It actually takes the community. And God's word makes that really clear. It's, it's interesting. When, when um, the people of Israel, they had gone to enter into the promised land, and, and Caleb and, 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 and Joshua went in, and they came back excited to take it, and some of them said, no way, and they discouraged the people from taking it. They went for 40 years. Remember, they wandered around for 40 years. God used the 40 years to prepare them. They come back, and as they come back to the land, they're ready to go over. The Jordan's at flood stage. They're standing, in a sense, at the edge. Two tribes come up. The leaders of the tribes come up to Moses and they say, these are the Reubenites and Gadites. This is just before Moses is dying, giving the leadership reins to Joshua. They said to him, you know what? The land over here on the east side, which we would like for our land, is, is suitable for livestock. So let us have it. Do not make us cross over the Jordan. And here's Moses' response. This is Numbers 32, 1 through 27. I won't read it all, just the first few verses. Do you intend to stay here while your brothers go across and do all the fighting? Moses asked the men of God and Reuben, why do you want to discourage the rest of the people of Israel from going across to the land the Lord has given them? Your ancestors did the same thing when they came to Kadesh Barnea. And that whole point of that scripture and the whole point of what's happening there is what you said. We want to do this together. Everybody's important. As we say, God, we're, we're recognizing right now that you're turning the point of what you want to have happen here is to reach people who don't know you, to empower and to embrace this younger generation, those generations coming up, to find the strategies and methods that will work for them, and we will do it together. The second thing I just wanted to share with you is God has prepared us to go there. Where you are, think about it right now, where you are right now, is always um, God's preparation for where he wants you to go next. Isn't that kind of cool? So wherever you're at right now, he is using this to prepare you for where you want to go next. With awaiting the tests, the trials, the insignificance, the daily routines of not being noticed or just faithfully serving, or the different ways that God is stepping and moving you forward even though you don't see it, it's still God's work to prepare you to get to where he wants you to be. For years, God had prepared his people. They had been 40 years in the wilderness. They come to the edge of the Jordan. The Jordan is at flood stage. At this point, uh, Moses dies. Listen to what it says in Joshua 1, verses 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. And he said, Moses, my servant is dead. Duh. Um, therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan, into the land, across the river, into the land I'm giving them. And I promise you what I promised Moses, wherever you set your foot, you will be on the land I have given. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land I have given you. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you, but God. Yeah, it is really time for us to go. You know what? We've been here. But God, we need to go there. We need to go where you are calling us. Every stage of Israel's journey, just think about it, from the uh, exodus going through the Red Sea, demonstrating the power of God to, to overcome the greatest enemy that ever stood against them, to going through the whole process of the wilderness. All that time was preparation so that they had a trust in a God, the but God, that God would lead them across that Jordan into the land to take it. And I really believe 
Just as they learned with each step God's protective love and his goodness and his ability to follow through on what he said he's going to do. I really believe as a church, having been here as your pastor for the last 12 some years, God has prepared us. He has taken us through some difficult times where we struggled with division and and a sense of rancor. We learned dependency and trust. We've grown in prayer and listening to God's voice. We've developed an ability to listen to one another and grow despite our differences. God has been working on me through this whole process. And God has prepared us. And you have to ask, you know, so why... Why do we need to leave here? It's because God's prepared us to go. And I'm going to share with you another thing that's really important in this. And that is not only has he placed us on our hearts, your hearts, not only has he prepared us to do this, so we don't have any excuse if you're standing before God. God says, no, as a church, I've been preparing you. I believe very clearly that God will provide the way. And this is the most difficult part of this whole thing. Because people are going to say, okay, you know, it feels like maybe we're coming to a place and we're at a, you know, I use this often with the elders. I said, you know, what we want to do is make clear to people that when they come like to the airport, they know what plane they're getting on. Well, the difficulty is we know there is here. It means that we're going to reach this generation. We're going to empower the younger generation. We're going to do this together. But the exact location strategy of how you get there is going to be in God's hands. But I do know this. God will provide a way. When there seems to be no way, God is able to provide a way. Have you ever noticed how many times the people of God stood at a place and wondered, how is God going to do this? We studied the last year the whole book of Exodus. They stood at the, at the Red Sea, and they're standing there not knowing what God's going to And God parts the way. Who would have thought? They get into the desert. There's no water. And he, what does he do? He strikes a rock. And then they go along, and there's no bread. What does God do? He has manna fall from heaven. Now they're hungry for meat. They want what they once had. And what happens? God has all these quail come in, and they have meat. They have an enemy chasing them. God has a way and gives them a strategy to defeat them all the way through it. Now they're standing at the Jordan River, and God doesn't use the same strategy. He says, "Not don't raise your staff. He says, put your ankles in, at least ankle deep, all the leaders, and then he parts the water. And then they stand there in, in, in the wake of this all, they're coming to the Jericho, which is a fortress that they know has never been defeated. How in the world is God going to do this? And he comes up with a crazy strategy. Walk around it seven times. Do that for seven days. Do you notice that every strategy of God to do what he's called people to do seems to be different. You would think he would use the same one so that people could get used to it. But that's the whole point. The whole reason God does this is because he wants all the glory. He will demonstrate through us his strategy. He will reveal to us in the same way. As we walk with him, as we point our direction this way, as we listen to him, as we move together as a people, God will step by step begin to show us exactly the strategies that he wants to reach people. As we look to our future and our culture, as we seek to figure out how to reach people for Jesus in a post-Christian culture where people don't seem to care about Jesus, they pick and choose their faith, they find no relevance in the church at all, God has a way. And I don't, and here's what's interesting, I wish I could say here's exactly the strategies 
in all humility. How do you reach a post-Christian culture? And I have to share with you, there's a lot of other people who are kind of throwing their hands up in the air right now. But God. Francis Chan wrote a book on this, and he thought, start the house church movement. I know people very much involved in it, and it's been just going so-so. The largest church, here's what you have to understand. The last 15 years, one of the most current things happening in churches that are growing is multi-sites. So the last 15 years, multi-sites. You see those in churches, they've all... Do you know the largest church in, in, North Carol, in, in North Carolina, in that Charlotte area, has just sent out a letter to all their 15 sites and say we're closing them down? I'm, this is like, what? There are larger churches that are starting to close down their multi-sites. You know why? Their response has been the digital church has changed everything. So all I can say to you is that I do know this, in a culture that um, doesn't know Christ and make a character of him and have found Christianity tired and wanting, who live with a kind of been there, done that kind of mindset, which is really much more difficult to reach than if you went to a place where Jesus had never been heard, a pristine culture that had never heard the name of Jesus. But I can tell you this, God has people he's going to reach and he's looking for churches who are willing to say, I will listen and I will follow and you will reveal and provide the way in which you want to do it. And I think in some ways, church, we are like Joshua at, at a cultural flood stage river and we're standing there saying, God, we're asking you to do what you've said that you would do. We believe that God will make a way when there seems to be no way. And if God has called us there, he will get us there. And the good news is, but God, he has called us, he's prepared us, he will provide, and the last is he will promise to do it. I'm going to ask the team to come up as we take communion. Uh, The reason I would love for you to be thinking about this with communion is because you can look at the bad news and be overwhelmed, but you can look at the good news and see again and again that God seems to come through. What is the hardest thing that God has ever done? Think about it for a second. What's the hardest thing God's ever done? For those of you who are a follower of Christ, he changed your heart. Okay? You don't have to look at anyone else. He changed your heart. And how did he do it? What we're going to do here in communion. He provided his son, Jesus Christ, in this communion meal where he, through his blood and his body, made a way for us to have a relationship with him. That's the hardest thing that God has ever done. And that's to reach me. And that's what he will do to reach others. He will always, as we said, place it on people's hearts, prepare them for what he's calling them to do, provide the way for it to happen, and then he will promise to fulfill what he said he called you to do. And I believe that for a church. So that's why we can't stay here. That's why we're going there. And God will make there more more visible as we walk with him. So those of you who have been fasting, I'm going to ask you to now take time and we're going to feast together on the body of Jesus Christ and his blood. So if you would take your cup, I'd like for you to just take a few moments and just prepare your heart. We're told in the word of God That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son.
that whoever would believe on him would have eternal life. I just want to share with you that um, this same God is at work. And it's real easy for us to look at the bad news. And it's really important that we look at the bad news. It's really important that we look at our own hearts. We, we look at it and say, God, even in our own waywardness, in our own failure, in our own brokenness, you provided a way. I love the fact that um, God did all this. He called Jesus, he prepared Jesus, and through Jesus provided a salvation, and he kept his promise, and he will keep his promise. Because that's what he has told us in his word. His witness will penetrate into every generation. What that looks like, how that looks, often depends on how we respond to him. And so at this moment, I'm going to ask you, as we've been many fasting for 21 days, I want you to feast on the but God truth. He loves you. He has blessed you with his presence. And now he wants us to bring his presence to this whole West Metro area and to the community around us. So God, we thank you. And we ask that you would use us as you have called us. And together, as you take this wafer, which is a representation of the body of Christ, be reminded that it is through his life and his brokenness that he has removed your sins that you are made right with him and you can live in peace with him and you can walk now in his kingdom not by your own perfection but merely by your trust in his goodness chasing after you again and again and transforming you so let us take and eat this together also told in the word of God as we see in the gospels and Paul tells us in Corinthians that that after he had taken and broken the bread he took a cup and he said this cup has incredible power because it's in the blood of Jesus his life that he has given for you that he has placed within you through his Holy Spirit (laughs) the greatest thing we know is that it is in Jesus that we live and breathe and have our, our being. And so as you take and receive the nourishment of this cup, remember again that you're feasting on his love and his grace and his goodness for you, his child. You are his son and you are his daughter. And he calls you to live as kings and queens in this world. 
It's like Peter said, we don't choose A or B, we walk in C, the kingdom of God. And so, God, we call ourselves to remember again that it is in you and your son, Jesus, that we place our faith. Let us drink together.